The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So we're studying the attributes of God, uh, the greatness of um, who God is, and we're looking at God's uh, communicable attributes. Again, attributes answer the question, what kind of God is He? What is He like? What are the characteristics of God? And uh, we've talked about two different types of attributes. The incommunicable attributes are those that are... Um, are uh, uh, it's impossible for those to be communicated or given to the created being. There's something that are true only of God. We looked at those. And now we're talking about uh, God's communicable attributes. And we're into uh, this arrangement that Wayne Grudem has given us, uh, moral attributes. We've already looked at the goodness of God. And tonight, uh, God willing, you know, we'll get as far as we can, but we'll look at the love of God, the mercy and grace and patience of God, the holiness of God, and the peace of God as well. So let's begin with uh, the doctrine of God's love. And uh, I would have to say this is probably one of the most uh, common thoughts that people have about God, that God is love. They know that even if they don't know anything else about God. Um, and it's a very significant idea that people have, and I think it's appropriate for us to consider that. I will say that those that emphasize God's love, that, that, know, uh, that, that talk about God's love to the exclusion of any of the other attributes probably don't really understand the love of God biblically. So that's what we're going to try to do tonight. We're going to try to understand the love of God biblically. Um, I will say this, that uh, I think all of us underestimates how much God loves us in Christ. And I think we ought to meditate more on it. I think we ought to uh, pray for it. I think this is really the focus of Paul's prayer life for the Ephesian Christians in Ephesians chapter 3, where he says, uh, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and that you would know that love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forever. Amen. So that's what he prays for and it's just a marvelous thing but he prays simply put that the Ephesian Christians would be established in love, that they would have a sense, an ever-expanding sense, of the scope of Christ's love for them. Why is that important? Why is that, we would, why is that something that Paul is fervently praying, that we would have power, together with all the saints, to grasp this one thing, how much God loves us in Christ, or how much Christ loves us? Why is that important? To make the church effective. We can't love, we're always... Okay. So it, it, it makes us effective. That's great. Other thoughts on this? Why do, why do we need to n just grasp the scope of Christ's love for us? What do you think, Flynn? What are your thoughts on this? I always love listening to you talk, so I picked on you, and I didn't think you'd mind. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
You know what came into my mind as you were saying that? It's the identification that the Apostle John gives of himself in John's Gospel. He never names himself. He just calls himself the same thing over and over. You remember what it is? The disciple whom Jesus loved. I mean, and in the end, my name doesn't matter as much as that. (laughs) You know, that's an amazing thing when you think about it. It's more important that I'm the one Jesus loved than whatever my name is. And uh, I just think that's powerful. So I I love what you said, Flynn. I, I knew I would. But that was good. Um, you know, I, I think we ought to meditate on this. And, and um, I think Satan is constantly trying to uh, move us away from understanding how much God loves us in Christ, how much Christ has loved us, because it makes us uh, in- insecure. It makes us ineffective. Uh, it makes us powerless. We're not able to do very much of anything. Uh, it really makes us selfish. But if you just know how much God loves you, it's powerful. Yeah, Jessica. Mm-hmm. The first thing that came to mind is that if I know that he loves me, that means he's, he's disposed to do good for me. Mm-hmm. If I believe that he's disposed to do good for me, I will be, I will frequently ask. Mm-hmm. If I know he's ready and waiting and loving, you know, mm-hmm. desires to do me these things out of his love, then I'll be much more prepared to answer mm-hmm. It makes us bold in, in asking. It makes us bold in... in um, uh, in, in asking him for things. I, my mind, as I listened to you, went to John 4 where Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who speaks to you, you would have asked him. You know? and, and that's, I think, if you know God, you'll ask him for things <laughs> because he loves us and he has everything at his disposal. And, and at, whenever he gives, he doesn't have any less of that thing to give. So it's just, you would ask him for something if you would know him. So we could go on and on like this, but let's, uh, let's talk about the doctrine of the love of God. And uh, Wayne Grudem uh, gives us this definition, which I find a little surprising, interesting. God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. Interesting, you know, I, I'm just re- recording what Grudem wrote here. That's, what, that's how he defines God's love. It's his disposition to give himself to us. Um, and uh, it reminds me of a John Piper book uh, recently entitled, God is the Gospel. In other words, that what God gives us, you know, through Christ, through Christ's shed blood, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through all of that, he gives himself. That's what we get. We get God. Uh, and so uh, the love of God is uh, his disposition to give himself away, to give himself to us. And that's an interesting definition. There may be some others, but let's just uh, keep going. Uh, I, I think as we're going to look at, at love and grace and all that, we're talking about movements within or, or dispositions, if that's a word we can even use, a disposition in the heart of God toward us. We're going to talk about that with grace. I don't know what that word really means, a stance, so to speak, within the heart of God toward us. Uh, so, God's love for us in that regard. All right, D.A. Carson some time ago wrote a book entitled The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. That's a provocative title. They think, oh, this is milk, right? This is a milk topic. It really isn't, actually. Uh, we have to actually plumb the depths uh, of Scripture to try to understand how God has loved us in Christ. So, let's talk about this book briefly and Don Carson's um, meditation on five different ways the Bible speaks of the love of God. Um, first, the peculiar love of the Father for the Son and of the Son for the Father. Peculiar meaning that it's a unique love. 
there's really a love unlike uh, this love anywhere else in the universe. Although there's, you know, I think all the other loves we created in the image of God, our love for one another is patterned after the love the Father has for the Son and the Son for the Father. But we see this in many places. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Uh, John 5.20, for the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, to your amazement, He will show Him even greater things than these. You know, if you look at um, at uh, uh, Grudem's definition that the love of God is the disposition of God to give Himself away, to some degree, the Father shows more of Himself to the Son than to any other being there's ever been. He actually, in this verse, shows Him what? In John 5.20, what does the Father show the Son? All that He does. Is that true of us? Is He showing you everything He's doing? Not at all. All right, and so there's uh, some privilege here, right? We don't, we don't, we're not privileged to see everything that God is doing, but the Son is. He's involved in everything, and shows him, and the Father shows him everything. Again, notice the stance between the Father and the Son. How the Son is in the passive state, waiting for the Father to do it, and it's the Father's decision to do it. It's a mystery the relationship there, but it's really quite an incredible thing. The Father has to do it, but He does it, all of it. And so there you have that idea of the son being the only begotten son, you know, the father giving to the son in this uh, way, uh, in involvement, we could say at this, at this point, in everything he's doing. So uh, that's the nature of the love that he has. And then how about back the other way, John 14, 31, the world must learn that I love the father and that I do exactly what my father has commanded me. So basically, how does the world learn that? How does the world learn that Jesus really loves his father? Specifically, in what way? Oh, the death on the cross. It's what he's talking about here. The world must learn how much I love my father. And then he goes and dies. Again, uh, you know, for me, I, I've, I've tended to see love in terms of sacrifice. And so it's something that's given of value that costs you something in some way. I don't know how that works between the father and the son, but it definitely works in this verse, doesn't it? The world must know that I love my father and that I'm willing to die for him. I'm willing to die in order that his plans might be executed. So we see it in that way. So the peculiar love that the Father has for the Son. Now, I meditated on this a little bit in a recent sermon. And uh, I think here, this is a different kind of love in that we would not use this kind of language as unconditional, okay? Uh, That the Father has unconditional love for the Son. We wouldn't use that. uh, Because that language leads us to think in this way, that that the, um, the Father loves in spite of rather than because of, Right? Isn't that definitely true of us, that the Father loves us in spite of who we are rather than because of who we are? But is that true of his relationship with his Son, that he loves the Son in spite of all that the Son is? It doesn't seem that way at all. Actually, he seems to love the Son precisely because of what he is, that he's a perfect reflection of himself. You know, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That's why the Father loves the Son, because the Father loves himself. And if you struggle with that, then read uh, John Piper's book, uh, The Pleasures of God. The number one pleasure of God is God. (laughs) All right? And it's like, well, I don't like that. That's just weird. Well, just work on it. Just what Piper will do to help you with that is think of the alternative. Suppose the number one pleasure of God is some created thing. That makes God the ultimate idolater, right? And he just won't be that way. And so the number one pleasure of God is God himself. And you could also say in a mysterious way, therefore, the number one pleasure of God the Father is God the Son uh, because He's such a perfect reflection of God the Father. That's really how we understand it. So we don't use this language of unconditional love. Uh, We don't. And I think that it doesn't end up that way with us either. 
I, you know, I'm pushing the boundaries here. I did it already in a sermon, so I can do it on Wednesday night. Listen, if I can do it Sunday morning, I can do it on Wednesday night. But that it's not going to be love in spite of when we're finally glorified either. You know what I'm saying? That's not going to be the case. He's going to love us all in spite of who we are. That's, that does, doesn't do justice to the salvation work. He's going to love us because of what we are. Because of what, and I think that's how he loves us now, because of what we will be, because of his sovereign power. When he's done with us, the potter and the clay, when he's done shaping us, when he's done redeeming and cleansing us and glorifying us and all that, what will we be? We'll be conformed to the image of his son and he loves his son, you see. And so he will love us because of what we are. And uh, I think perhaps now we could understand that he loves us because of what we will be also now. So he sees us in terms of what we someday will be by his sovereign power. So that's a beautiful thing. Yes, Susan. I'm not sure what I've been talking about either, but that's okay. Go ahead. Um, right. But uh, based on our discussion at our home fellowship, when I ended up talking about my many misunderstandings, uh, what it would have been like had Adam had a sin, right. his relationship with God would have been right. And um, I just think my question, uh, basically the only way you and I and any of us here are ever going to relate to God is through grace, right? Even once we're redeemed, even right. once we are fully redeemed, it's still going to be grace. Yeah. I mean, even if Adam had a sin, it was grace. I mean, I'm not sure about that because my, my understanding of grace is God's disposition to do good to those who deserve his wrath. Um, so I, I, I tend to think that grace really isn't extended toward the holy angels. Um, I, think, I think of grace and mercy as things that really come down to us in our sin and, and aren't really needed. I think God could love the holy angels, but I don't think he has had any grace toward the holy angels. So, I, you know, and I, I think you don't want to quibble over words, but uh, ultimately, you know, we want words to have some meaning. And so I tend to think that the home base of grace has to do with us and our sin. And so we'll, we'll get to that. That's a good question, though. Very good question. All right. So the peculiar love of the Father. I don't think, by the way, we can meditate too much on this love between the Father and the Son. Um, I think that the, the sun, the S-U-N, the, the, the sun that burns up in the sky, it's, it's intensity, it's, it's heat, it's light. It's like God is that zealous for the sun. You think about zeal being like a fire. You know, I, I read zeal in, um, in uh, Psalm 2. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Anybody who, who hates you, I am their enemy. That's God the Father speaking. You know, that kind of thing. After what you did, going to the cross and all that, you sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies a footstool. And uh, basically the warning in Psalm 2 is you better kiss the son and embrace him and love him because if not, then I, God the Father, I am your enemy and I will crush you. So that's the zeal that the father has for the son. You just cannot think too highly of the love the father has for the son because frankly, that's how we get saved. We're saved in that love. We're saved in Christ and in that relationship with him. So awesome. But we need to keep going. So it just would not do if tomorrow I say to Tom, I'm sorry, Tom, I only got to page two, uh, top part of page two, actually. All right, number two, five different ways the Bible speaks of the love of God. God's providential love over all that he has made. Okay, God loves his creation. And the Bible speaks in that language of the love of God for creation. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus is speaking about love for enemies. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So in other words, anything that God does in providence to sustain his created beings, the Bible calls love. It's a display of the love of God. Paul calls it kindness in Acts where he's preaching. He says he has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Those are all common grace blessings, physical blessings, Esau-like blessings, like a good stew, 
you know, or a ball game or a hobby or a sunset or any of these things that are just part of every good and perfect gift. The Bible would kind of put that under the heading of love, God's love for his creation. All right. So by causing his son to rise in the evil and the good, he is sending love. And therefore, it is appropriate for us to say that God loves everyone. All right. I'm I'm reformed in my theology. I think that God loves everyone in some ways and he loves some people in all ways. That's the distinction I would make, that there's different levels of love, but he definitely does love his enemies. And you get that right out of Matthew 5. Isn't that what he's commanding us to do? Love our enemies so we can be like God because God loves his enemies too. Now, that is a very good example of love in spite of rather than love because of. All right, that's probably the prime example there ever is, is God's love for his enemies. Uh, not because of what they are, but in spite of what they are. And uh, Matthew 6, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than, you, than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of those. See, what Jesus is doing there is meditating on God's goodness and his love in creation. He feeds the birds. So God loves the birds by feeding them. I think that's what you get. And you get it in Psalm 104. I didn't pull out anything there. But if you just just look at it... um, you know, Psalm 104, you don't have to do that now, but the whole thing is a testimony of God's uh, power uh, in creation and specifically his tenderness and his love, although I don't think I'm looking now and I just don't see the word love. Um, but it's okay, it doesn't matter um, because it, it shows it in other places. But basically God feeds every living creature. He feeds them all. He feeds the fish. He feeds the birds. He feeds everything that he's made. He has created a needy, dependent world. He's just, he opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. That's what it says. He opens his hand and satisfies them. That's love. That's what the Bible says. So God loves the, the worms, the rodents. You know, you don't love them, but God loves them. All right. He takes care of all that he's made and he loves them. Psalm 145, verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he's made. See that? So it's, an, it's a display of love. All right, third way that the Bible speaks of the love of God. God's salvific stance toward his fallen world. So this, John 3.16, probably the most famous. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So what Don Carson's doing here is he's saying that there's a, a general salvific stance toward the world that shows his love in general for the world. He's not here speaking about the doctrine of election or reprobation or God knowing, you know, Jacob or Esau or any of that. He's just talking about the world in general and God has a loving stance toward the world and that's why he sent his son. And that's, I think, the best way to understand the word love in God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that's, I I think, a general stance. It's not specific applied towards specific people like you get with Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. It's not that. It's just a general stance. Um... The analogy that my professor used when I was in uh, uh, theology, Roger Nicole, he talked about, um, uh, what's that scholarship that takes uh, Americans over to Oxford? Um, Rhodes, Rhodes Scholar. Okay. The Rhodes Scholarship was set up by an English, as far as I understand, an English businessman who just loved America and wanted to give uh, a benefit to uh, Americans. So that's a, a general stance that this individual had toward America so that he set up the Rhodes Scholarship. You see what I'm saying? And it's not, it's not going to every, it's not every single of the 300 million Americans are going to become Rhodes Scholars. That's not it. 
It's just a stance he has toward the nation as a whole. And so I think in the same way, God has this stance toward the world. He's got a love toward the world, and that's why he sent his son. Okay? Um, so uh, that's just a, a general way the Bible speaks of God's love, his love for the world. Fourth, God's particular effective selecting love toward his elect. Okay? This I think we see definitely in the Old Testament concerning the Jews, how God chose them among all the nations on earth to be his special pe- people and his uh, treasured possession. And it uses the word love to describe that. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other uh, peoples. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he's, he's saying <clears throat> that the Lord has loved this people. Do you see the word love there? It's because of this that the Lord loved you. It's because he loved you that he did this, that he, he has set his affection on you, etc. By the way, what is the answer? If you could ask, if you're, you're the Jews and you're reading Deuteronomy 7, if it's not because we're the most numerous of all people, then why did God love us? What does the verse say? Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. He made a promise. Okay. It's in spite of that, etc., but if you, if you just look at the word because, because answers the why question, what, is the, what comes after the word because? Because the Lord loved you. It's like, well, wait a minute. I thought that was the question. <laughs> why did you love us? Why did you set your affection on us? Because I loved you. It's kind of like that's the final word on this. All right. In other words, I'm not really telling you. It's just because I loved you. And so this electing or selecting love of God is just something completely in the character and the heart of God. And one thing he wants the Jews to know, it's not because of anything I saw in you. Even if you talk about the promise that I made to the forefathers, it's still not because of anything he saw in them. And so this is one thing we must understand. Concerning us in our sin, concerning us as descendants of Adam, when God sets his love on a child of Adam, it's not because of anything he sees in them. You should never think God chose me because of this or that or this thing that happened in my life or this other thing or the way that I handled this other circumstance and I was awarded with election by God. God knowing that I would do that ahead of time and all that. It's, it's never portrayed that way. It's always because of something inside God, not something inside people. Isn't that good to know? I mean, now there's your unconditional love. There's your love that comes simply because of God, not because of anything in you. And it's important... Um, it's important for us to know that because that means we don't have to keep it up, whatever that thing was. You know, it's like, you know, we we have to kind of keep up that thing that first caught his eye, you know, or else he's going to lose affection for us and go on to some other spouse to some degree. You know, Christ will never do that to his church because the love is coming from inside him. It's not drawn. You know, actually, the image in Ephesians 5 and other places that he's making his bride what he wants her to be. You know, he's crafting and shaping and cleansing and preparing her for the wedding day so that he may present her to himself the way he wants her. And that's really true, isn't it? That's exactly what God's doing in salvation. So the love of God then for his elect is something that comes simply from within himself. Deuteronomy 10. To the Lord, uh, your God, belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Now, it's interesting how it's written there. Why does it mention to the Lord, your God, belong the heavens, even the highest heavens and everything in it? Why does why does it say that? What's what's that verse setting you up? It's like, okay, this is describing what? 
The sovereignty of God. Okay? The greatness of God. Of all the people. It was all His anyway. He could have done anything. It's not like He was limited in resources and you were all He could afford. You know? I mean, you're kind of middle of the... You know, I had to, I had to get, a, get a Yugo because that's all I could afford. You know? It's not like that. In effect, He's saying, I could have had anything. The whole universe was mine. And, and that's what He says in another place. Although, although the world is mine and everything in it, I've chosen you. And, and so it's like, oh, wow, we must be something, ain't we? Well, the more you kind of study about God, the more you start to realize that's precisely not why he chose you. He wants to show just how gracious and merciful he is. So you might actually want to look at yourself and say, hmm, maybe that's why he chose me. So I can give ample displays of just how gracious God is. So at any rate, um, yeah, so God could have had anyone. And yet, despite all of that, he set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And then certainly that's just the Jews in the Old Testament then this electing or selecting love is displayed for us in Christ as well. Could somebody read this for me? Top of page 3, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Okay, so there, uh, for our study tonight, we're looking at love. In love he predestined us. Do you see that across verse 4 and 5? In love he predestined us. Okay? Uh, later, you see the word love. Uh, to the praise of His gl- glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the Beloved, would be one translation, in the one He loves. And, you know, in, in Ephesians, in is going to link right to Jesus. So that's definitely Jesus. Jesus is the one He loves, and He has chosen us in Him. And so, in love, He predestined us. So, God's predestination, God's choosing of an elect people to be His people, His precious possession is an act of his love. That's it. He, it's because of love that he does it. It's so important that we understand that. It's because he loved us in Christ. And uh, I think this is what it means when uh, God says in Amos, um, uh, you only have I known among all the nations of the earth. And this is, uh, I think, you know, the NIV just goes right to, the, right to the point, although I think it would have been better to keep it the simple Hebrew, you only have I known. Most translations do that. They say, you only have I chosen. So the choosing of God uh, is what he has in mind there. And it is. But I think the, the knowing is better language because, you know, back then, you know, KJV and all that, Adam knew Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, that kind of thing. You know, we kind of know what that means now, don't we? Wink, wink. You know, we just kind of use these kind of circumlocutions. Adam kind of knew her and then he knew her again. And so what am I saying? That's how God knew his people. And that's exactly the language he uses. It's a marital image. He even gets very graphic about it in Ezekiel. He said, I found you as a baby kicking around in your blood and I got you up and I cleaned you and got you all ready. And then at the right time, when you were time, you know, it was the right time for love, I married you. You know, that's exactly what he says concerning the people of God. It's definitely a marriage analogy. And we see the same thing, uh, the mystery between Christ and his church. It's a union, a, a, a love match, so to speak. Um, how God has loved us in Christ. And so basically, he set his love on us before the foundation of the world. And, and it says, therefore, in Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Isn't that amazing? I mean, seriously, while, while the pyramids were being built, he knew you and loved you by name. 
while the pyramids were being built. You know, when Napoleon was invading Russia, he knew you and loved you by name. It's like, why wasn't he even born yet? Well, it says before the foundation of the world, he chose us, so he knew us. He knows his sheep by name. And, and they're going to follow him, and he's going to get them. This is the doctrine of election. But all I'm saying is tonight, it's a biblical doctrine, but what I'm saying is it's an expression of God's love. It's because he loves us. That's all. So, you know, very, very deep, very, very challenging, uh, but beautiful. Uh, it's because of God's love. And then fifth, the Bible speaks of his provisional or conditional love directed toward his own people, conditioned on their obedience. So there are experiences of love that we have with God that are conditional that we will experience God's love if we obey His commands in certain ways. See? And, and I think this is important. Jude 21. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you uh, to eternal life. What does that mean? Is this, you know, are we into, we're into, you know, Arminianism here now? Where you, you know, you, you've got to hold on to God and you've got, you know, you could lose your salvation. Keep yourself in God's love and all that kind of thing. No, I think what it means is there is something you need to do in order more fully to experience the love of God here in this world. Do that. Keep yourself in God's love. I think it clearly has to do with obedience to His commands. You know what I'm talking about. You've been Christians long enough to know that. Don't you experience God's love better when you obey Him? And don't you say, you know, don't you feel more distant from Him and more relationally frayed with Him when you don't? I think there's a reason for it. And I actually think that probably is the number one way that God disciplines his people is by a relational distance and a coldness in our hearts. And we know it. And it's like, what has happened here with me? You know, I don't seem to want to pray as much. I don't feel as close to God. What is God doing? He's disciplining us. And in the discipline, there's an invitation to remedy it, right? Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you, it says in James 4. Come back and put away your idols and put away your sins and come back and you'll experience my love more fully. That's all conditional. If you don't, you won't. It's, it's, it's really that you're going to keep on going in, in coldness and distance from God. So there's just a conditional side to it here. Again, John 15, 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain or abide or dwell or continue in my love. Stay in my love. That's what he's saying. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Boy, he spelled it right out for us, didn't he? You want to stay in the love of God. You want to keep experiencing it. Then just obey him. Do what he says. Okay. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. Exodus 25 and 6. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So in other words, same teaching there. Basically, I will express love to you if you'll obey me. I'll express my love to you in a fuller and deeper and richer way. Okay? Jesus said, that's how I experience my Father. I do everything he says, and that's why I am in my Father's love for that very reason. And again, Psalm 103, 17 and 18. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his uh, precepts. So that's, that's how God's love is with those people, those that fear him and love him by obeying him. Okay. I added this one uh, tonight or today, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give financially, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So isn't there a kind of a condition there? If you're a cheerful giver, God will love you. So there's a kind of love, an experience of love that you'll have if you'll cheerfully give. If you don't cheerfully give, you won't experience it. That's all. So the question is, how much of God's love do you want to experience? 
How much of God's love do you want to feel operative in your life? Well, then just study his commands. <laughs> Find out what he wants you to do. And then you will, in an ever-increasing way, um, understand and know his love. Okay? Now, a uh, final conception of the love of God for the elect in heaven is that God's love will be seen in his delight in what we actually are and have become by his grace. Psalm 11:7. again, I added this today. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see his face. So the idea there is that God loves justice. And, and this is number six. Look at the bottom of page six. I would add another expression of the love of God. Boldly, since Don Carson just gave us five. But I'm sticking in number six here. I'm not saying that Don's saying these are all the ways that God shows love. But God loves attributes too in the Bible, not just people. The five here all have to do with God's love for people. But I think this is beneficial here. This verse, Psalm 33, 5, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. Do you see that? The earth is full of his unfailing love. So I guess what I get out of this is God loves righteousness. He loves justice. He loves mercy. There are these attributes that he loves. When he is done saving us, we will be perfectly righteous, perfectly just, and per- perfectly merciful and all that. He'll love us because of it. Do you see? Because he loves that. And now we are that. Do you see? So he basically loves these things in and of themselves. He just loves righteousness or he loves justice. He loves mercy. And therefore, when he has transformed us, then he'll love us as a result. Does that make sense? Okay, so the difficult doctrine of the love of God. It's deeper than most people uh, assume. How then, according to Carson, should we speak accurately of the love of God? Carson makes three observations. Number one, we must not take any one of the five ways of speaking of God's love and absolutize it, making the others only of secondary importance. In other words, hold all five together. It's like, yeah, well, this is the really important one. You know, all of them are important. Secondly, we must not view these five ways of speaking of the love of God as independent, compartmentalized loves of God. Basically, that statement is similar to our attribute study. We're not going to focus on any one of these attributes and say, my favorite attribute is such and such. Don't do that. Don't have a favorite attribute, okay? <laughs> Love all of what God reveals about himself. And so all he's doing is taking that concept and bringing it down to this one attribute. Love every way that God expresses his love. Just be, be delighted that God is that kind of a God who loves his enemies, who loves his creation, who loves badgers and, and everything and gives them everything they need to eat. Just love that about God. Okay, and then third, we must rethink some characteristic evangelical cliches in the light of these five ways. God's love is unconditional. We've already worked on that tonight. You know, uh, it's true of number two, three, and four, but not one, uh, one five. Well, I, I did some other thinking on that with you together. You know what I'm saying. That not all of God's love for us is unconditional. Some of it is he loves us directly because of what we will become or will be in Christ. And God loves everyone in exactly the same way. Well, um, he says that's true of way number two. What's that? God's provision. Yeah, providential love. Well, even that's not true. I mean, God doesn't providentially love everyone in the exact same way, does he? I mean, if so, then we'd all be able to play basketball equally as well as Michael Jordan. And that clearly is not the case. I have proven it, all right? He didn't love me that same way, all right? He doesn't give everybody the same stuff. He doesn't give everybody the same piece of real estate. He doesn't give everybody the same things in life. We just need to be careful about these things because some of the things that we just say commonly are just patently untrue. And they get you into trouble. I mean, let's be more precise. Let's be sure that our language is tied to Scripture. As a matter of fact, just speak Scripture. Keep it safe, all right? I mean, that's the best way. Just speak Scripture and you'll be in good shape. All right, any other comments about God's love? What's that? Yeah, I didn't say that you're going to be fine. Totally. Yeah, the devil can speak Scripture, but it's safer, isn't it? So at any rate.
Yeah, long story short is uh, there's a lot more in the Bible about God's love perhaps than we thought. Yes, go ahead. Right. Um, well, I think some of these things are just set up to explain things that are presently the case that will not be the case in the future. Um, for example, we all know biblically that marriage is temporary. So by that I mean created being, created being, in a special kind of union together, husband and wife, etc. That's temporary. Uh, it's part of God's present plan. At the resurrection, people neither marry nor be given a marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. So it's temporary. I think what happens is if you take what I said about love from Jonathan Edwards, that the most benevolent person in the world basically has enlarged his own joy to include other people's joy. All right. So basically then, if somebody else is enjoying something, if I love them, I'm enjoying it through them. And so I am, I am see, you, if you keep going, that becomes a kind of a oneness, almost similar to marriage, right? If it's perfected, that's like almost exactly what it is. We all become one. And so any honor or blessing or happiness that anyone else enjoys, we are so, use Edward's language, enlarged as to be able to take that into ourselves and be delighted in it. No jealousy, no envy, none of that in heaven. Um, I think the jealousy and envy aspect where God is a jealous God, etc., has to do with idols. Um, it has to do with competitors for that special affection that should be given only to him. God is dealing with idolatry in redemptive history. It will be dealt with. And so in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no idolatry. Do I say then that God is no longer a jealous God at that point? I don't know what to think. All I'm saying is that's all been resolved. We will be perfectly loving God and he'll be loving us. There'll be no competitors and we'll be, we'll be fine with that. So I guess there's a temporary aspect to our marriages now that you know, is appropriate and, and, and teaches us an aspect of you know, God's jealousy over us and that he doesn't want us to love idols, etc. But I think all of that is going to be left behind when we get into the new world and our hearts are transformed. So, and, and I think in terms of the one aspect you asked, my special relationship with God, I think we, we know enough to know that we would want that for everybody. We want all of our brothers and sisters to enjoy it too, as much as possible. And so, and I think God is urging us in that direction. Countless multitude, remember tribe and language and people and nation. So, you know, I don't like large crowds, God. Well, you better like them because you're going to spend eternity with a large crowd. Um, and, and we'll be like, totally okay with that at that point. We'll be excited. And, and in our hearts, though we know we believe in predestination, election, the number is set and all that, we want as many people there as possible. We really want an enlargement there. So. Okay, guys, let's move on. Let's talk about mercy, grace, and patience, which I didn't link together, but Grudem did, and we're following Grudem tonight, so let's uh, try to find out why he links them. All right, he gives these three definitions. God's mercy is God's goodness towards those in misery and distress. God's grace is God's goodness towards those deserving only punishment. And God's patience is God's goodness in withholding punishment toward those who sin over a period of time. So I guess if you look at those definitions, you can see that there's a lot of similarities. It's, it's the goodness of God expressed to people in, in sin or dealing with sin or the effects of sin, the ramifications of sin. So these three are clustered around people suffering and struggling and having problems with sin. Does that make sense? 
and I, I said that earlier, you know, in terms of the holy angels, etc. So let's, you know, let's look at these, all right? Um, so you see the difference, and, and I, I tell you, it is hard to make a distinction between God's mercy and God's grace. Grace and mercy are frequently linked together, you know, in the Bible. So they're really very similar. But there are, there are different words. So uh, I, it's not just Gruden, but many theologians say mercy has to do with misery, wretchedness, suffering, you know, blind people. Have mercy on a son of David, that kind of thing. It's, it's got to do with I'm miserable, I'm, I'm in pain, I'm suffering the effects of my sin and God has mercy on us. You see what I'm saying? And, and since the ultimate pain is hell, then we could say salvation is an expression of God's mercy and rescuing us from that, like sticks snatched from the fire. And so that's a display of God's mercy by saving us from hell. You can see that. So uh, grace then has to do with... Um, I, you know, I would define it this way, and I, you know, I define it in the new member class to talk about grace. Grace is um, not merely unmerited favor. That's a pale reflection of the truth. Okay? It's a vast understatement, both on unmerited and favor. Okay? <laughs> All right? You know, to me, I go to the, the mathematical analogy, the, the number line, negative infinity, positive infinity. It's like basically positive infinity given to those who deserve negative infinity. All right? Or simply put, if you like these, heaven given to those who deserve hell. Or every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms to those who deserve the wrath and curse of God. You have to have both of those together or else you don't really get grace. Grace really has to do with us and our sin and what we truly deserved. Unmerited favor uh, really uh, is so pale uh, because, you know, you could see a scenario where you would go to a total stranger and give him a $20 bill. That's unmerited favor. Favor, $20 bill. Unmerited, you don't even know him. They didn't do anything to deserve it. Is that what has happened for us here in Christ? A $20 bill to those that God doesn't even know? No. He's given his son. He's given his son for us. He's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And does he not know us? Oh, he knows us. Oh, he knows us completely. He knows everything that we've done. He knows that we were rebels against him. We were, we were sinning every day and, and, and violating his laws and his commandments. Uh, that we had defied him, and yet he loved us in spite of all that. So that's grace, do you see? So we'll talk more about that in a minute. But these, these th- the three things, I think, go together. God's patience. God shows patience toward us in, in withholding from us what we deserve, sinners, uh, what we deserve over a long period of time. Okay? Well, what scriptural support do we come? Uh, these attributes are frequently listed together, and there's an interplay, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. It's all kind of mixed in there. That's who the Lord is. We see uh, God's mercy at work and tenderness to the suffering. When David had to select a punishment for the sinful census, you remember that? He chose three, ta- three days of plague at the hands of God. And this is his reasoning, Second Samuel twenty four fourteen. David said to Gad, the prophet, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. The implication is their mercy is not great. And I've known that throughout my life. Okay? But God's mercy is great. In effect, David is saying, God won't be able to keep it up. All right? He'll start killing people and killing people, and people will fall down and beg him to stop, and he'll stop. You know? And that's basically exactly what does happen. God has tremendous mercy. And that's uh, what David did. When Christ did miracles, it was done out of mercy, compassion for the suffering. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on a son of David. 
And then Mark 5:19, Jesus did not let him continue with him, travel around with him. But he said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Again, Elizabeth's stunning pregnancy after years of shameful barrenness ascribed to God's mercy. In Luke 1:58, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy. There was really an unusual mercy. I mean, because she was past, past the time of bearing children. So God showed her great mercy. And she was certainly, I would think, just like Hannah in the Old Testament, miserable about it. I mean, you can imagine how miserable it was for Elizabeth all those many years. And how, you know, Zechariah had prayed for it. And uh, how they had uh, probably cried and probably struggled. You know, if you've ever known a couple that yearn for a child. And it's just one of the great miseries that there is in this world. And so God steps into their misery much later than they would have wished, but much better than they could have wished too, um, and uh, showed mercy to them. So we see that. All right. Uh, mercy is linked to salvation itself. Luke 8, 18, 13, the tax collector stood at a distance, would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Okay. And then Romans 9, 15 and 16, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now, this, this statement, it, refers to salvation. It refers to election, really, predestination. Um, God chooses because of his mercy. God saves because of his mercy. That's why it doesn't depend on anything in man. Romans 9 teaches that quite plainly. All right, so salvation, mercy is tied to salvation. Grace is constantly seen as the fountain of our salvation. Now, again, grace is a disposition in the heart of God toward us. And if the word disposition doesn't do anything for you, I don't know what else, what other word. It's a state of God's heart. It's some, something in God's heart toward us. And, and it never changes. It's just God has this grace toward us, a determination to do us good. And it's out of grace that everything comes. It, it just flows by grace. And it's just, boy, it's such a, a beautiful thing to study this doctrine, the doctrine of God's grace. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You know, it's funny. Uh, recently, Andy Wynn, I just the other night, uh, went to see... Uh, who are these Celtic singers, these ladies that were down there at Durham? Um, do you know what I'm talking about? What are their names? Huh? No, 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 no. They, they're a secular group. Huh? The Celtic women. There it is, Celtic women. So he went to see her. See them, uh, they, I've seen them on YouTube singing um, O Holy Night. So they're, they're, they sing in kind of an ethereal sort of way, but they're not Christians, I don't think. As a matter of fact, Andy went, went and talked to their manager because they sang Amazing Grace and uh, went and talked to their manager. Are they believers? And he looked at them like Andy, like he was from Mars, speaking Martian. <laughs> believers? Believers in what? It's like, sorry I asked, okay, you know, you know get out of that one. Um, but at any rate, no, apparently not. <laughs> okay. So why are they singing Amazing Grace? Well, in, in some mysterious providence, John Newton left Jesus out of Amazing Grace. Yeah, you ever wonder about that? It's just like one of the great songs. Don't you think John Newton's thinking about Jesus? I think he's definitely thinking about Jesus. Don't you think? He just should have mentioned him. Because, you know, as a result, and maybe you could say, well, in the providence of God, it's a song everyone can sing, even the Celtic women not knowing anything about Jesus, singing amazing gracefulness or something. I don't know what they, you know, we, we use that word grace. What are they thinking? I wonder that amazing grace. Is it gracefulness that they're celebrating? I don't know what they're celebrating. Just a pretty song. 
I guess, something like that. But we Christians, we hear it our own way. Oh, that's our favorite song. It's like, yeah, say it, spell it out. Amazing grace in Jesus that saved a wretch like me in Jesus because he died for me, that kind of thing. Put it in there. Other Newton songs, I'm sure he spells it out very beautifully. But at any rate, grace is God's disposition to do us good in Christ. Never separated from Christ. It's always in Christ. And so Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, look at how much uh, God's grace is prominent here. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we are by nature objects of wrath. So there's, there's the black backdrop on which the, the, the diamond of grace is poured out here and sparkles and shines. The same thing in Romans 3. Romans 3 is just all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace. And Romans 3 actually went into great detail. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. We are really wicked people. And yet God has shown us grace. So the two of them go together. It is God's disposition to do us good despite the fact that we're like this. That we're like this. Following our lusts and the passions of our flesh and Satan and doing what he does. Despite all of that, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So it's just grace. So in verse 7, grace expresses itself. You see what I'm saying? So grace is a disposition of the heart that results in stuff. Results in promises. Results in in benefits. Results in, in blessings. But it starts in this disposition. The fountain of it is grace. And how do you explain grace? No one can. No one can explain it. Why is God like that toward us? To the praise of His glory. Not, there's nothing in us that could cause that kind of thing, especially given the cost. Mm-hmm. He who did not spare his own son. I mean, that's the cost. And there, you want to know how much it's Jesus. That's the cost. And, and you, you know, you look at that and it's like, there's nothing in me except an opportunity to show grace. That's what there is in me. There's a chance to show grace. So that's really what it is, a disposition. Grace, uh, also the source of all the blessings we have in addition to justification, sanctification, glorification. Uh, Ephesians 3, 7 and 8. Paul says this, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So that he uses the word grace to talk about what? Paul's talking about what in these verses? Ephesians 3, 7 and 8. Spiritual gifts or his own calling as an apostle. I am an apostle because of grace. God gave me a gift. How is it grace? It's just a good thing to be able to serve Jesus and do things of of eternal consequence. It's a good thing to write the book of Romans. That's a good thing, you know, to be the one that wrote Romans. That's that's an awesome thing, and God chose him for that. And then this one, 2 Corinthians 8, 7. But just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. It's an amazing thing. So basically then, um, God is gracious toward us and therefore we're generous. 
How do, you, how do you put that together? Well, you know, our natural state is not to be generous. Our natural state is to be stingy and selfish. So if you are lavishly generous, thank God for it because you've become like God. God is lavishly generous. That's it. So it's a gift of grace. So basically then you can rightly say every good thing, every good thing that you have in your life has come to you by grace. And whenever you think grace, think Christ. Think Christ dead on the cross, bloodshed because of that. And so therefore I say there is in some sense a benefit to the entire world to the shed blood of Christ because they wouldn't even exist if it weren't for it. God, I think, probably would just shut it down right in the Garden of Eden. But because he intended to send Jesus and shed his blood for the elect, and I do believe they were shed for the elect, the whole world benefits in that at least it gets to live. I really look at it that way. Because Jesus shed his blood, the world gets to live. If God hadn't chosen before the foundation of the world to send Christ as the Lamb, all right, they wouldn't even live and have the chance to breathe the air and eat the food and look at the sunrise and sunsets and hold their little babies and all the common grace blessings that non-Christians have. They come through Jesus. They come more specifically through Jesus' shed blood on the cross. That's really how I look at it, okay? But does that mean they get every benefit that comes through Jesus' shed blood? No, they do not. Or else they'd get it, friends. Don't you understand that God's effective in getting it to us? <laughs> and so if God wanted them to have it, they'd have it. If you struggle with that, struggle away. But be sure you struggle by means of the scripture. If God wanted to give it to them, they would have it. And if you have it and they don't, is it because of you? No, it's because of God's grace to you. He opened your heart. He overcame your hard heart. He took out your heart of stone. He gave you a heart of flesh. And you saw in Jesus the glory of the gospel. It's a beautiful thing. All right, so... In the end, you want us to understand grace? Look at these charts. Look at what you deserve and look at what you get instead. There it is. There's negative infinity and positive infinity right there on the page. You deserved eternal wrath from God. You get eternal peace with God. You deserve separation from God. You get fellowship with God. He actually wants to be with you. Can you believe that? I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you, said Jesus. Why? Punch a arguing, bickering, who's greatest disciples? He wants to eat with them? Yes, he does. He wants to eat with you and me. It's amazing. Uh, we deserved a completely, completely fruitless life. You get instead an abundantly fruitful life. Uh, you deserve to be rejected by God. You get adopted by God. Circle that one. How did that happen? We're actually adopted as his sons and daughters. We deserved a careful and accurate punishment for every sin we ever committed. We get instead complete forgiveness for every sin ever committed, no matter how grievous. By the way, it must be that way because 1% of your sins will send you to hell. So he's going to forgive all of you or none of, none of those sins. So he, can, he forgives it all, all of it, 100%. We deserve rejection of every supposed good deed for motive's sake. So those are your good works. How many good works do the non-Christians have? Biblical answer, zero. They have none. Okay, what do we get? We get actually rewards for deeds done by faith in righteousness. You get actually rewarded for your good deeds. You deserve isolation from all other beings in darkness. You deserve, you, you deserve that. You get instead fellowship with angels and other redeemed people. In short, you deserved an eternity in hell and you get an eternity in heaven. And I would think just the more of this kind of meditation you can do, the happier you're going to be. <laughs> I really think that meditation on both sides makes you really, really happy. It's like, oh, I don't like all this negative stuff. I'm going to cover over the bad stuff and I'll just meditate on all the happy stuff. You just will not get the same result. Instead, study what the Bible says you deserve and then look at what you, what you get and then you'll be really happy. Okay? All right. God also, uh, the attribute of God, patience that Grudem's dealing with here, seeing in God's, the goodness of God and waiting a long time to punish sin. 
Uh, Genesis 15, 16, it says, In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. This is spoken to um, Abraham when uh, God is saying to him uh, that you will inherit the land. He's basically saying, not yet. Um, it's the fourth generation. Your descendants will get it <clears throat> in the fourth generation. Your descendants will be enslaved in a country not their own. They'll be mistreated for 400 years. And after the 400 years, I'll bring them out with great power and they'll come in here. But not yet, because the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached its full measure. <clears throat> what does that mean? Well, I don't know exactly what it means, but it seems like God has a measure of sin. And when it reaches the full amount, then judgment trips over. God sets that measure by his own will. The measurements are different. God sets them. We don't know how big it is. So therefore, a lost person should not presume on the future. He doesn't know how his measure is set where God has said, okay, that's enough sin. You're done. You know, so we should repent today. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation, that kind of thing. We should repent now. But the fact of the matter is, God is clearly very patient with the Amorites, isn't he? He's at least giving Abram a kind of an insight in the fact that they're going to have a little more time. He's going to give the Amorites 400 years. Now, I don't think Abram would do them any good service to go say, oh, by the way, you guys, take it easy. you got 400 years to do some more sinning. Uh, the fact is that any of them, when they died, would be going to judgment under the wrath of God. So individuals, there's no promises. But he's saying, as a nation, they're going to get this, they'll have this land, control this land for 400 more years. That is a display of the patience of God. And they were wicked. I mean, very wicked. And Joshua comes in there and wipes them out. Romans 2, 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? Okay? So here we have the patience of God. Non-Christians show contempt for the patience of God. That means they minimize it. They presume on it. They think that it's evidence that there is no God. They actually do that with it. God is being patient toward them and they think it's proof that there actually isn't a God. Look at this. If there's a God, he'd punish me. Watch what I can do. They don't understand that God is being patient toward them right now. There actually have been some sinners that in the middle of their sin, God did strike them down immediately. Nadab and Abihu. You know, who's that king? King Herod with his robes. And uh, he didn't give glory to God and God struck him down right there on the spot. And so if God doesn't strike a sinner right down immediately on the, on the spot, he's being patient toward them. That's the biblical word for it. God's showing patience toward them. And so um, it says that God is slow to anger. Uh, Psalm 86:15. But you, O Lord, are a compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Jonah 4.2, this is... Absolutely astonishing. You just have to know the context here. This is Jonah praying to the Lord. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? I'm not reading it right. I'll read it the wrong way. That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow and ang anger and abounding in love. You're a God who relents from sending calamity. Is that how he said it? No, he said it with great anger. He was really frustrated with God. So read it that way. I knew it. I knew you would do this. It's what you always do. You know, this kind of thing. That's Jonah's attitude. I knew you were going to be merciful to them. What did Jonah want? He wasn't wanting mercy. <laughs> he was, remember, he's sitting up on the hillside to watch the show, you know, the pyrotechnic show. But it wasn't coming, all right? And it kept not coming. So instead, he gets a vine growing up, and he's at least happy about the vine for a while. It's a beautiful story. But at any rate, God is a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. 
So God doesn't do that, you know. Uh, we see patience toward the objects of his wrath, Romans 9.22. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? All right? Do you, do you understand what that word means, that phrase? Great patience. God is showing great patience toward the reprobate. That's what Romans 9 is saying. He is showing great patience toward them. And you're like, well, in what way? Well, I think Judgment Day will make it plain. But the provocations, the blasphemies, the wickedness piled upon wickedness, and God doesn't do anything, just gives them more time, gives them more sunshine, more rain, more food, more blessings, and then more sin follows, and He gives them even more after that. Great patience. And why does He do that? Well, what if He did this to make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy, whom He prepared in advance for glory, even us, He says. In other words, God is putting the reprobate and his patience on display for our benefit so that we can see just how patient God was with us, I think, and with them. We have to stop there. We're out of time. So we'll pick this up next time. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the study we've had tonight on your love, also on your grace and your mercy and your patience. And Father, I pray that you would work these attributes in us, help us to understand how these are communicable attributes and how we should display them as well. And I thank you for being patient with me and not giving me what my sin deserves. I thank you for the fact that you um, are so patient with us all. I pray that we would repent quickly when we're aware of sin in our lives, and so that we would bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.